This first part is free. No extra charge, as uh, Sam Kadan would say. This has no, little to do with the, the sermon. But from what Mouse read this morning from the first few verses of chapter 19 of our Parsha, I just wanted to make an observation here. I'm not going to talk about the cow, okay, except for this short little snippet. First of all, you notice it was a heifer, not a bull. Every other sacrifice, a bull was ordained, not a female. You notice that same requirements were there, no blemish, the whole thing, never had a yoke on her. Every hair on this heifer had to be red. It had to be a perfect cow, as all sacrifices are supposed to be perfect. But then you notice something else interesting. Where were the sacrifices slaughtered and offered? At the tabernacle, inside the camp. The specification for the red heifer was to be outside the camp. Then the priest was supposed to take some of the blood, sprinkle it toward the tabernacle, which how don't how far outside the camp he was, but he couldn't have hit the tabernacle from there. Then he used to burn the whole thing. In the Tree of Life version, it says, burn the heifer, her hide, flesh, blood, and refuse. So nothing was to be left out of this sacrifice. He was also supposed to throw in... Um, different linens and cloth. But what happens when you burn anything till it becomes ashes? It becomes white. The ashes are white. The heifer is red. It's, a, it's an offering for sin. Sin, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Here's what's another thing that's interesting. The priest then has to cleanse himself. And then he can enter the camp. But that verse doesn't stop there. It says, but he will still remain unclean. Wait a minute. He handled what was supposed to be a covering for sin. But yet he becomes unclean. But he can enter the camp unclean. That's something else that doesn't normally happen. You remain outside the camp until evening then you can come back in the camp because now you're clean. A lot of different things here in the red heifer, and that's all I'm going to talk about about this cow, is that it's different than every other sacrifice. It's set aside specifically for this purpose. But we're going to move to chapter 20 of the book of Numbers. <clears throat> it goes like this. In the first month, the entire community of Bnei Israel arrived at the wilderness of Zin. Of Zin. The people stayed at Kadesh. There, Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community. So they assembled against Moses and Aaron. Does this sound familiar? The people quarreled with Moses. Does this sound familiar? They said, if we only had died when our brothers died before Adonai. Now why have you brought the community of Adonai into this wilderness for us and our livestock? To die here? Why 
have you brought us up from Egypt to bring us to this evil place, a place without grain, fig, pomegranate, vine, grapevine, and there's no water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from before the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Then the glory of Adonai appeared to them. Adonai spoke to Moses saying, Take the staff and gather the assembly, you and your brother Aaron. Speak, it's divartem, to the rock before their eyes, and it will give out its water. You will bring out water from the rock, and you will give the community something to drink, along with their livestock. So Moses took the staff from before the presence of Adonai, just as he commanded him. This is where the twist comes in. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly in front of the rock and said, Listen now, you rebels. Must we bring you water from this rock? And what did he do? He raised his arm and he struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and its livestock drank. But Adonai said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me so as to esteem me as holy in the eyes of B'nai Israel." Therefore, you will not bring this assembly into the land that I have given to them. One quick note. You'll notice that at the time that Miriam died, the water dried up. The sages had made a connection between Miriam and the water. And the death of Miriam and the water drying up came at the same time. Without going into detail about what some commentators and some teachers will uh, talk about. It does talk about that. You notice when, when Aaron died, they mourned for 30 days. Later on, when Moses dies, they mourn for 30 days. When Miriam died, there's only four or five Hebrew words that say she died. No speaking of mourning whatsoever. But how important was Miriam? Miriam, first of all, was the one who set Moses on the river to be delivered when Pharaoh was killing off all the firstborn of the Hebrew children. You could say that because of Miriam, God preserved his salvation for Israel. So she was kind of important. She's not only that, she was one of four women in the scriptures that are called prophetess. So she was pretty important, but yet there was no mourning Cited that occurred for Mary, Miriam. Okay. That was a side. That's free too. But a couple of observations I do want to make from this passage we just read. Moses struck the rock twice. Not Aaron struck the rock. One or two times. So why was Aaron punished? Why did he get excluded from those going into the promised land when he didn't do anything wrong. Well, the sages say that because Aaron was established as Moses' advisor, it was his responsibility to keep Moses in check and to keep him calm so he didn't do or say anything rash or out of anger. And since Aaron did not intervene, he was going to suffer the same consequences as Moses. And that being, after these 40 years, not being allowed to enter the promised land. 
Why was the punishment so severe? Tradition answers this by citing the 10th verse when Moses said, Must we bring you water from this rock? And then verse 12, when God said, Because you did not trust in me, so as to esteem me as holy in the eyes of B'nai Israel. Let's go back, but just put a hold, hit the hold button for a second. And let's go back to another time that they were crying for water. And you will recall that after seeing all the miracles, including being able to cross the Red Sea on dry ground, the Israelites grumbled and complained to Moses and Aaron. One of those complaints, again, was the lack of water. So in Exodus chapter 17, it says, All the congregation of B'nai Israel journeyed from the wilderness of Sin in stages, according to the command of Adonai, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Adonai? But the people thirsted for water there, and they complained against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us with thirst along with our children and cattle? So Moses cried out to Adonai saying, "Am I to, What am I to do for these people? They are ready to stone me. Adonai said to Moses, Walk before the people and take of the elders of Israel with you, along with your staff, which you struck the river, struck, the Hebrew word is hikita. Remember that for a second. Take it in your hand and go. Behold, I will stand before you there upon the rock in Horeb. You are to strike Ikita, the rock, and water will come out of it so that the people can drink. Then Moses did, ju- did just so in the eyes of the elders of Israel. Like I said, they've repeatedly seen miracle after miracle performed by God. And they saw it with their own eyes. So when Moses struck the rock, they knew it was another one of the miracles being performed by God. They knew it was God and it wasn't Moses. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, they understood that. But while we're here in uh, Exodus 17 for a second, note this terminology. Verses 5 and 6, the same Hebrew word is used regarding striking of the river and striking of the rock. Hakita. So what's the difference then between Exodus 17 and Numbers 20? Well, the generation that saw those miracles is gone. This new generation only has word of mouth knowledge of what God did for their ancestors. Except, of course, the whole opening up of the ground we just saw and swallowing up Korach and his legions. But other than that, they really didn't have any first-hand knowledge of God's miracles. As a matter of fact, even in the opening up of the ground, what did they say? You killed God's people. Really? 
And you find that in, in Numbers chapter 16, verse 41. That's what they said to Moses and Aaron. You killed God's people. So even then, they weren't acknowledging that it was a miracle from God, but they were attributing it to Moses and Aaron. So when we read about them starting to complain just like their ancestors did, at this point, Moses probably had enough. Forty years of dealing with complainers. Forty years of dealing with doubt and unbelief. So, out of anger, he shouted out, Must we bring you water from this rock? Notice, must we. Instead of, must Adonai. Instead of pointing to the one who was about to bring forth the water, even had he not spoken to the rock but struck the rock twice, he should have still been given credit and honor and glory to God who was going to do make this miracle. So by doing that, Moses was actually taking credit for the miracle. Whether he was conscious of it or not, he was taking credit for the miracle. So he didn't allow God to be glorified in the eyes of the people. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 12, it said that God said, so as to esteem me as holy in the eyes of B'nai Israel. So that gives us a clue that that's what the sin was. It wasn't so much the disobedience like many point to. Yeah, he was disobedient. But why did this disobedience supersede any other disobedience that we've seen in the past in the Scriptures? But he was supposed to be fulfilling a Kiddush Kiddush Hashem, sanctification of the name. Instead of what he did commit, which I mentioned last week, something called Kilul Hashem, which is profaning the name. He actually brought dishonor to God. So in Exodus 17, it said, Strike the rock. Hikita Batsur. But in Numbers 20, we read, speak to the rock. Divartem el hasalah. Now, there's a clear difference. Not only in Hebrew, but in our English translations. Hikita, strike, and divartem, speak. They don't even sound alike. But neither Moses or Aaron either were uneducated when it came to understanding the difference between striking and speaking. But they both ignored what God said to do. Now, some commentators, and I, I, I'm not one of them, they say that maybe Moses was thinking back. And he remembered what happened before. God said, strike the rock. And so instead of listening to the rest of the instructions... He stopped there and he went on and he struck the rock twice. Okay, but if that's true, it doesn't change the fact that he disobeyed the command that God gave him. Whether he didn't listen to it or he didn't hear it is irrelevant. He disobeyed the command. And what did I say about Aaron? He was supposed to be his closest advisor. So why didn't he say, whoa, hold on, little brother. Did you actually hear what God just said? But 
put that staff down and speak to the rock. No, he didn't. He allowed Moses to go ahead and strike the rock. I can't answer why he didn't intervene. I can't even fathom why his closest advisor and the high priest did not stop him from going against the command of God. But we know what the outcome was. Commentators also have said that in some way Moses actually brought dishonor and disgrace to God in the eyes of the people. That's why it became a Chilul Hashem, profaning of the name, because he didn't bring glory to him. This became such a serious sin that Moses was not going to be the one that would lead the Israelites into the promised land. But worse for him, he himself was not going to enter the promised land. Now, I can only imagine how devastating that would be. It's one thing that this generation here died off, so they didn't make it in. This generation is going in. But I've been here for the whole 40 years with both generations, and now I'm not going in? You had to be pretty devastated. I'm going to point this out, and you can research this on your own if you'd like, and I'd love to hear feedback if you can find it. But we read in Exodus 17, and then we read in Numbers 20, concerning the rock. In Numbers 17, it says, Tzur. But in Numbers 20, it says, Salah. Both of them translate to a rocky wall or a cliff. Why the difference in the usage of words here when they were written down by the same person? I don't know. I could not find the answer, sadly. I, I really did try to research that. But so I would welcome anybody that has that can find out why a different word was used for the rock. I welcome that feedback. But this does remind me of another time when we find two very similar words that refer to the word rock. And yet they have two different distinct meanings. Probably You may know where I'm going from here. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Yeshua came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They answered, some say John the Immerser, others say Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. He said, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Yeshua said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I will also tell you that you are Peter. The Greek word used here is Petros. And upon this rock, Petra, I will build my community. And the gates of Sheol will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will have been forbidden in heaven. And what you permit on earth will have been permitted when you, what you do on earth will be, have been permitted in heaven. Now, we've heard this before, but I want to emphasize, a lot of times when the rabbis taught, they used hand gestures. I do too, right? You saw the gestures I made. You are Petros. On this Petra, 
I will build my community. In classic Greek, the difference between Petra, which means massive living rock, and Petros, which means dedicated, or detached from the large fragment of rock, which could also be translated stone or pebble. So see the difference. The Petra is the huge rock. Petros is a piece of that huge rock. Isn't that, though, what Yeshua would want? Because this gives me the impression that Yeshua was saying in verse 19 that even though Peter was a small piece or a small part of him, that he was leaving him with his power and his authority to carry on after he's gone. Any rabbi, any master or teacher will tell you that's the ultimate compliment is for his students, his Talmudim, to carry on his work. That's what he wants to happen. He doesn't want them to hold it inside after he's gone. He wants it to continue, and he wants them to go further than that. Yeshua said it himself in John chapter 14, beginning at verse 12. Amen, amen, I tell you, he who puts his trust in me, the works that I do, he will do, and greater than these he will do, because I am going to the Father, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, so he may be with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not belong, behold him or know him. You know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. Wait a minute. What did Yeshua just say? Greater works? Did I read that right? Who can possibly do greater works than Yeshua himself? How is that even possible? Well, he said it is possible. See, who among us, thinking about it, some may answer to one of these or maybe more than one, but not all of them. How many have healed the sick? How many have raised the dead? How many have caused the blind to see and the lame to walk? And who has spread the word of God with more authority and power than Yeshua? I would never lay claim to that. I've never done those things. I have prayed for the sick and they recovered. That's about it. I, I, I can't claim that I'm caused lame to walk, blind to see. I have never raised the dead. But remember, the spirit of truth that abides with us and is in us, as we just read, That's how we can accomplish greater works than Yeshua. By carrying on His ministry, His legacy, His work. In Yeshua's words from Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, it is not your place to know the times or season which the Father has placed under His own control, but you will receive power when the Ruach HaKodesh has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and through all Judah and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
There's one very important way that our works can and should be greater than Yeshua. And we have an unlimited capacity to fulfill that. How so? When Yeshua was here in the flesh, his ministry was focused on and limited to a relatively small area of the world. But since the Ruach, the Holy Spirit, is with us and in us, every believer has the potential of making an impact in reaching the whole world. That's something Yeshua did not do in his ministry. He left that up to his disciples, his Talmudim. He left that up to you and I to go forth and continue to spread the gospel and continue to have, bring people to salvation. Yeshua is our Petra, that massive living rock. And we know he lives. But each of us become his Petros. We're the stones that are carrying on his ministry to a lost and dying world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And based on what he said back in John 14, through us, through each and every believer filled with the Ruach, we have the ability to bring people to salvation. Yeshua gave us the marching orders. He said that we'll do greater works. Are we doing greater works? I can only speak for myself. Everyone has to decide for themselves. Are they doing what they're supposed to be doing? Are they fulfilling what Yeshua said and becoming greater than he in his work and the works that you're performing in his name? Big question is, if not, why not? Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we thank you and we bless you. Because you gave us your word that we can understand what you want for us to do. You gave us your word so that we can lead others to understanding what you want for them in their lives, in their families, in each and everything that we do, Lord. All that we accomplish for you is what matters and what counts. It's what will magnify your kingdom here on this earth. We pray that we would diligently seek you in all that we do and that we will become your ambassadors which have more and more understanding, more and more boldness, that we can do greater works than Yeshua. Not being over him, not taking over from him, but taking his leading through the Ruach HaKodesh, guiding us in each and everything we do. We pray that we will become better at doing your work, better at doing your will, better at reaching out to others who don't yet know you, better at studying that we can show ourselves approved unto you, workmen that can't be ashamed, but we rightly divide the word of truth. In Yeshua's name.